Eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting Chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is a Swiss luxury watch manufacturer based in Schaffhausen, Switzerland. Known for its unique engineering approach to watchmaking, IWC combines the best of human craftsmanship and creativity with cutting-edge technology and processes. Discover the full collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and today we have a very special episode of the show for you. We're in the office studio. We actually moved around the tables. You're the first person to get this configuration, so very exciting. We have Mike Brock, lead of TBD at Block, formerly known as Square. Thanks for joining the program. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. We're, we're going to be in competition today to see... Who has the most sultry voice? So I'll, I'll work really hard. I on think it. you're. I think you're winning. I'm very excited for this show, just because so many of the recent episodes we've had have been very markets focused, and just talking about those two wild characters, Suzu and Kyle Davies. Well, I guess we did have the Avalanche folks on, but we haven't talked tech that much, or even kind of couched everything that's happening in the market with these bigger questions that hang over the space and the biggest question being why, why does this stuff matter? Why should we care? Especially as it pertains to web three and decentralized finance, you are in a unique position in the market. You think a lot of it is nonsensical. I, I do think that. And you and I were having a conversation in the room adjacent here and I, I was kind of making the point to you that I, I do think this is a very important set of technologies. This is a very important time. I love technology and the role that technology plays in our culture. And technology is the basis of civilization, you know, starting with the discovery of fire all the way up to the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. You know, most of us are, I think, at least... I think you were probably old enough to remember the invention of the internet and the advent of the World Wide Web, and then ultimately where we are today with this app economy and mobile phones. And I think I think it's like important to frame what technology is for ourselves, right? I mean, ultimately, what technology is, it's the disintermediation of labor. It it makes our life easier. It we don't have to do as many manual tasks anymore. Automation 
is we can leverage our labor in better ways as like the wheel does with like transportation. And blockchain is is a furtherance of that, right? It, it's about the removal of intermediaries. I think Bitcoin is an amazing like vision for a future where we can have a way to transact with each other, right? Like have money without barter and not rely on financial intermediaries or even or even governments in order to allow that to happen. It's an amazing idea. And I'm and I want to say that I, I think I get a reputation for being this sort of dyed in the wool maxi. I don't think that that's like where I am. I am a I think I myself as a realist. Like Bitcoin is the chain that I believe the most in. But I also think there's great things happening within the broader ecosystem. I mean, obviously, zero knowledge proofs and roll-ups, these are all really interesting computer science advances that I think if you squint, I do start to look and say, like, yeah, there's there's probably some applications that can be that can be discovered here. But I have been skeptical of a lot of it up until now. And I don't wanna sort of act like I'm engaging in, in Schadenfreude here, but like what's happening now in the market is not a surprise to me. I mean, I I've sort of have predicted this very publicly for a while now that there obviously is too much froth here. There's obviously not enough utility being provided by what we are seeing happening in this market that we call the crypto market. And I don't wish ill on, on anyone who's struggling right now, but I do think this is like a time for us to sort of sit back and really think about like, what what is it the utility that we're building and like I said to you in the next room, kind of forcefully, that there is a killer app for crypto. It's payments. Payments are the killer app for crypto. Yeah. Right. The disintermediation of payment networks and banks and like this entire set of financial. I mean, the financial sector is huge. I mean, do people realize that like the financial sector is like nearly like a third of the economy? Mm-hmm. It's insane. Like this hyper financialization of our world. In the, the 80s. Yeah, non-productive sector of the economy. Like, of course we should want to disintermediate that. Like, so we can, you know, have more of our productive time spent building things and and making life more enjoyable and So look, I'm a big believer in this idea, this idea of using blockchain technology to disintermediate middlemen. Like, of course, like, let's do that. But I mean, I I think we have to be realistic about how do we get there? How do we do that? How do we actually assemble products and services that further us towards that goal? And this has been the nature of my disagreement with a lot of what is said in the Web3 space. Well, I think at the core of your argument is this understanding of the consumer. And this is the point that I made in the adjacent room. People don't want to use many of these apps. Put DEXs aside, put decentralized finance aside. These consumer apps that have tokens, games, things like Steppen, basically X to earn. They don't want to use that unless they can actually make money. That's the inherent utility. When you take that away... And this is a question I've been grappling with as someone who's used many of these apps and has actually enjoyed using them. But once the value's gone, they almost become irrelevant. And Steppen is a really great example. When you were talking about, I don't really see people being wooed by many of these applications from a centralized alternative for that value of having a stake in the platform itself. Most people just don't care. With Steppen, it did make a lot of sense to me because I don't know when when I run, I have 
many different levers that I can pull to keep going. So if I'm running, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, let me just get another 10 minutes in, another 15 minutes, so time. Or I'll have another lever that I can pull, which is distance. Let me just get another mile or another, you know, two miles, whatever, kilometers for our European listeners or Australian. Miles. Actually, the whole rest of the world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the whole rest of the world. Or the third lever that Stepan introduced to my running situation was incentive and you know i want to keep running until i earn those four gmt tokens and i actually thought that was like fairly powerful but here's where your argument comes in which throws cold water on this what happens when those tokens are worth nothing then it's really just it's nothing and the only way it works is if the price to some degree goes up and to the right but once it doesn't and we talk about this all the time especially with gamefi and it's actually fascinating to study this as from an economic perspective. You literally have many economies that once the token price drops, the economy within the game kind of dismantles. And that's not a concern that most, you know, when you're playing a game, you don't want to worry about like a labor market issue or a supply crunch or liquidity drying up. You just want to play a game. So there's almost these two sides to the coin which I think can boil down to it works when price goes up and, and when it doesn't, maybe it doesn't. I think that that's the big question right now hanging over crypto. It's like, what happens when the music stops? Are those use cases as relevant relative to payments? Because you can have a payment system that runs on Bitcoin, on blockchain that works if the price is not working, so to speak. But we've already... I've already identified the problem here, right? This hyper-financialized sector of the economy that produces nothing and doesn't produce things that ultimately take you all the way to the necessities of life, to feed yourself, to house yourself, you know, um, to buy nice presents for your significant other. The reality is, is that like step in, in this case, right? Like, like where, where is the nexus on production back into the economy. Like we're just seeing what we already knew about the nature of value and money, right? Like, you know, within this whole marginal revolution that we had in economics. And of course, right, the equation balanced itself out and it just can't keep going up and to the right, right? Like I think there is a greater fool dynamic that was at play there. And I think we're kind of waking up to that. And I wanna just say like, I am not a skeptic of, of like blockchain, right? As a disintermediating, medium, as I said in the outset of this conversation, what I am a huge proponent of is refocusing people's attention onto the fact that like, one, I do think decentralization is very, very important if we're gonna have a positive future for humanity. I think it's very scary that our information, our personal information is being increasingly siphoned into fewer and fewer hyperscale platforms that know everything there is to know about us. They monetize us with like advertising and they have the potential power to manipulate us. And they do. That is like where I think a lot of the, the skepticism of the way that social media works today, that like the algorithms want to increase clicks. And so they like it when people are angry. People are engaged when they're angry mm -hmm. and mad. And so, so they, they wanna make you angry. Yeah, and I am the first person to say, this is really bad for our democracy. It's really bad 
for like the future of our civil society. We're like tearing ourselves into pieces. And so like, yeah, I am right there with the web three proponents in identifying those problems. My worry is the solutions they've come up with are just not compatible with human nature in a fundamental way, right? Like we were talking about TikTok in the other room, right? Like I can't convince my daughter to not go on TikTok. I think TikTok, I think it's awful that this platform is under the influence of an authoritarian government on the other side of the Pacific Ocean. There was just articles the other week about how they're collecting information on people. Like it terrifies me the Chinese government knows like has information on my daughter and then by virtue may know something about me. Like like I I scream from the rooftops, but I also realize that like people are going to keep using it because it keeps releasing dopamine in their brain and that feels good, right? Like we're drug addicts for these stupid things, right? The holding up my phone for And the so I censor that... a censorship resistant platform based on blockchain, a social media platform based on blockchain that gives you a stake. People aren't going to want it because there's not going to be that behavioral incentive to drive them to look because it won't be so toxic. Yeah. And it's in the toxicity. The toxicity is addictive. That we use these things. We complain about the toxicity, but we're addicted to it. And so like what Web3 is doing, you don't disagree with it. You actually think it would be a powerful tool, just no one's going to use it. Yeah. But if you strip away that. I mean, I mean, that, that, I mean, that already exists in the real world, yeah. right? Like we have good journalism. Yeah. Like you can find good journalism. Like- you know, uh, like, but we don't go to good journalism. <laughs> we yeah. go to like CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and like whip ourselves into frenzies. And actually, I think it's like a perfect analogy, right? Like good journalism is like places like ProPublica or, yeah. um, you know, and, and these like really just sort of rigorous like journalistic practices that, you know, I, I think world would be better if we were able to steal ourselves and kind of step back and try and look at things objectively. But we don't do that. It doesn't fulfill that that need to release more dopamine. And so if we are going to do this, and this is what we're trying to do with Web5, is we're saying, look, we need to start thinking about like the core incentives that drive people to do the things they do. And we need to find a way to build applications that, yeah, unfortunately, give people dopamine hits, but allow us to build like business models around that that are more healthy and minimize some of the downsides. This is why there's so much emphasis on like self-sovereign identity in our work, why there's so much emphasis on like owning your own data in our work. Because we think that like, if you can make that easy, if you can make it free, if you can make it like hyper portable, then, then I think, you know, you can really start thinking about like architecting apps that are as easy, actually easier than apps are today. Because if we have a fully working self-sovereign identity system with portable credentials, then we can like single click on board mm -hmm. to complex services, like single click on board to a stock trading app, single click on board to cash app. I'm gonna plug our own products now or single click on board to title. And I think that's a future where like you can actually have less friction, but still have more control. And that's what the web five, and I recognize that we're, you know, we're kind of poking a little bit of fun when we came up with that term. And I know that people's mileage will vary on whether it's funny, stupid, annoying, or enraging. And I understand, you know, it, it takes a village. But like, so from our perspective, we accomplished our mission, I think, of shifting the conversation and, and being able to talk a little bit more about these things. Because actually, actually, I think decentralization is super important. That was like the promise of the internet. 
And the internet is a decentralizing technology, but the problem is, is that centralizing forces work themselves back in with the economic models, with this ad-based model that we're that we're talking about. How do we break that? How do we, I'm not 100% sure we can break it. What I think we can do is I think we can limit the damage that those bad incentives cause by really changing the way we think about structuring data and identity on the internet, which will limit the ability of these large platforms to abuse their power and manipulate us. And I know that this is probably really controversial in this in this space because I recognize everyone is like super libertarian and anarchist about this. But like if we have the technological ability to own our own data and build applications that are easy to use where we own our own data and our own information, it does open the possibility that legislation and regulation could be deployed to actually motivate the makers of applications to take advantage of that sort of architecture, to limit the ability of big data being used against us, to manipulate us, to know more about us than we know about ourselves. And I'm not specifically advocating for that. I don't have like a vision of like what laws should look like in the future, but I think it's a significant risk. Like I think the amount of data that like Google and Meta and TikTok have on us is like, I put it up there with like nuclear weapons in terms of how scary it is. Mm -hmm. Like with this information, you could manipulate entire societies, literally bring down democracy. I don't think that that's tinfoil hat stuff. Like advertisers are doing it today. I mean, like, and advertising is fine, right? Like you get to see ads that are relevant to you about things you like, right? Like, but you see how disturbed people are when they sometimes see, they go on Instagram, they see how relevant those ads are to like what they were thinking about. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. Um, and so, but that is- And they'll like, show you ads relevant to the other people in your house because they yeah. think you'll buy stuff yeah. for the other people in your life. So. Yeah, but, but what, what happens when you start using stuff like that for politics, ideological views? Well, they are. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's that's dangerous. It's it's very very dangerous. And the amount of data that they have access to is crazy. Talking to lobbyists is a very eye-opening situation. So you talk about finance. No one's paying attention to payments and the whole point of this whole kick caboodle is to remove the friction, the toll takers. When most people think about web3, they think about defi, they think about dexes, they think about uniswap. I mean, uniswap works. I mean, they trade billions of dollars a month, sometimes more than centralized venues like Coinbase. It's fairly capital efficient. It removes all of those barriers. Anyone can go in and for the first time, be a market maker, be a liquidity provider. You don't need to be co-located to the New York Stock Exchange to do this stuff. You can do it from your home. How is that sort of imperfect? I mean, that seems... Hey, actually, I'm a big fan of like you know, the whole concept of a DEX and automatic market makers. I think, you know, the whole concept of atomic swaps are like amazing. And I, and I actually think that these, these concepts and even sort of pure crypto DEXs could be relevant in the future, even within the work that we're doing. The problem I have with them today is I'm really skeptical that crypto native solutions are necessary and or sufficient to accomplish what they think they're out to accomplish. Like, here's like the real thing about like TBDEX. Like this is the real insight that underlies it. You and I are sitting in a room and we're talking into microphones and 
I'm looking across at you and captivated. Yeah, I'm you're I'm I'm very captivated by you too. Um feelings mutual. And that doesn't like mean anything in the purely like digital realm. Like we are physical beings. We are like in meat space. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like the way that I'm gonna like authenticate myself is I'm gonna like I'm gonna look at my phone as like scanned my face. It's really cool. Face yeah. ID on on my phone is like really awesome. But like I have to like authenticate with the digital realm and I have to find a way to like prove who I am with like logins and passwords and one time codes that get SMS to me. And sometimes that actually becomes a disaster with these SIM swap attacks. The interface between us and the digital realm is complicated. It's messy. And like the evergreen issue of like coming up with better key management in this space is like the ultimate example of that. The reality is, is that like, even if you do like solve these problems of DEXs, you solve the problem of key management, you still have this problem, right? Like you can't have like a online economy, which is detached from social trust in the real world. Like, are we just going to set up like this, like DeFi store that we're, the only way we interface with it is like through anonymous payments and they set up a payment address and I send to it, like nothing requires any KYC or identity. Like we're going to completely like remove ourselves from the shackles of, of sort of authentication and, and, and verification of identity. And I, what I say to people is like, even if you're a complete anarchist and you just believe that like the government should go away and there should be no regulations and this should be a purely capitalistic free market society, I still think you're going to want something that allows you to negotiate social trust between you and another financial actor. Like, are you gonna go and like buy a gold watch from an anonymous online merchant and then send them a non-reversible payment for $10,000 and just hope that it gets drop shipped to you? And if it doesn't, you're gonna say, well, Unfortunately, the cost of freedom is I can't know who anyone is on the internet. Like, like, like that doesn't make any sense, right? Like we can't build an economy around that. So like what we're saying is we have to have a way to authenticate with the real world. We have to have a way to build up social trust. So like you can trust who I am and I can trust who you are and that there's some way of like having some credence of reputation that we can then relate back to the world. And I think what we're doing with TBDX is completely compatible with like what Uniswap and all these other DEXs are doing. Like we're trying to build on-ramps and off-ramps from the real world fundamentally. That's what digital identity ultimately gets you. That's what the ability to negotiate trust on the TBDEX network ultimately gets you. And there's nothing precluding people from using our protocol to plug into the Uniswap protocol, like once you've on-ramped and then be able to trade digital assets. We're not precluding that. Like it's it's a completely open protocol, like have at it. I mean, I, I have my own doubts as you guys already know about some of these other crypto assets. I would tell people to to tread carefully, but like, I think that that is like the really key problem that we're trying to solve here. Yeah. But I guess you could say the same about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. You still need on-ramps and off-ramps. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not a coin-specific thing. It's not a coin-specific thing. I went up on stage in Aspen at this uh, Fortune conference last week, and I, I said to the entire audience that like, I think that a lot of people delude ourselves around how mature this market is and that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I'm trying to be like super like forward and honest with everybody. Like we still have a lot of work to do. Like even if you're a Bitcoin maxi and you believe that Bitcoin is gonna supplant state currencies and become this sort of like universal currency that we all use and rely upon because of its properties, 
you're still not anywhere close to getting there if you don't solve the problem that I just outlined. Like, it's a really important problem that needs to be solved. Identity and trust protocols need to be established. Otherwise, this is just a big science experiment. We talked about payments. We haven't talked much about capital markets. You were, I mean, the gigabrains behind Cash App. Cash App is a very popular stock. You can buy stocks there. What could the future look like for brokers? Like, are stocks trading on a version of a blockchain? And how does that engage them with like a cash app? What does that future look like? It's an interesting idea, right? Like I, I, I know an, an unhealthy amount of the post-trade settlement regime in equities um, from having <laughs> having worked yeah, in that space. That and must I, have like, yeah. been very thrilling for you. Yeah, it's it's a... It's actually insane. It's not. It's not really worth everyone's time to get into. But let's just put it this way: like the way that that stock trade settlements work is like really crazy. There's this whole concept of like custody and clearing brokers and all this other nutty two stuff. Two plus two. Yeah, yeah. And it does. Like when you look at it, it, it looks like something that these sets of technologies could really help with. That they could potentially provide more efficient markets, reduce settlement risk and ultimately lead to more capital efficient markets. But I have I have to admit, like, I haven't spent that much time thinking about it. So I'm not like, I can't sit here and like make a compelling case in the way that I can with sort of the, the payments, identity and trust use cases. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, it's interesting, like in the same way that I think the legacy payment system is just like fundamentally stuck in the past with like the ACH system here in the United States in particular, which is like, practically third world how ancient it is right at this point i mean in fact many third world countries have a more modern payment system than the united states which is crazy but like when you think about things like the equities market and and how it's also bogged down by like similar sort of ancient processes yeah like i think it's interesting i I hope people are thinking about it because i'm not right now um it seems like something worth thinking about Are you eager to make more informed decisions around crypto using data you can trust? Chainalysis is here to help. Chainalysis demystifies cryptocurrency by providing industry-leading compliance, market intelligence, and investigation support for all crypto assets for organizations like Gemini, Crypto.com, and BlockFi. Gain unparalleled visibility and maximize your potential with the leading blockchain data platform by visiting chainalysis.com slash the scoop now. This episode is brought to you by IWC. IWC Schaffhausen is known for continually innovating within the world of Swiss watchmaking. A pioneer in the use of titanium and ceramics, IWC today specializes in highly engineered watch cases manufactured from advanced materials such as colored ceramics, ceritanium, and titanium aluminide. This year's collection includes colored ceramic pieces in Lake Tahoe white and woodland green. Discover the new collection at IWC.com or download the IWC app to experience a virtual try-on now. See, here's the thing I don't buy into. I don't buy into any of the well, someone actually called me out on this the other day. They were like, you don't believe in NFT technology. And I, I said, no, that's not what I said. I just think that PFPs and these collectibles that can be used as a form of digital self-expression make more sense to me than like ticketing on the blockchain. It just 
Ticketing doesn't seem that difficult to me. You just buy a ticket and you're good to yeah, go. Yeah, I don't get that. I don't really get ticketing on the blockchain. Someone, you know, can red pill me on that another day. It just seems like a good way to like increase the risk of losing your ticket. Yeah, or it not working. Yeah, just like would rather have it. I mean, I was, I was having a debate with somebody about this. I mean, about a month ago, and what I observe about the ticketing market is, you know, I, I had the the privilege of being invited to the Grammy Awards, which was like a nice like thing to have experienced. And one of the things you really notice is like how much effort a lot of these like ticketed events go into, like trying to prevent tickets from being scalped. And they like tried very, very hard to avoid these like secondary. And there's like literally like it basically the, the ticket actually says if you sell your ticket, you'll be banned from the Grammy Awards uh, forever. <laughs> yeah, so, well, I guess yeah, like you, and, if you had an yeah. NFT ticket, then yeah. you could authenticate it in the wallet. You could see that this is the address holder. Or but the if not holder. for secondary markets, what's the point of NFTs? Well, I guess this is more of a specific like use case. Maybe you could restrict it from going to a secondary person. But why does NFT get you there? As I mean, I could just like just, put an ent entry in a database and say like, yeah. show your ID at the door. I mean, like, I mean, like there's like, I don't know. That's what I don't, that's what I don't understand. But I do get like this form of, to your point, we are in our meat bodies most of the time, but actually most of the time we're probably not. We're in this digital realm. Twitter for me, Instagram, maybe for you, TikTok for Dean. Pretty unhealthy. Yeah. But. But we do it anyways. So much of what people know and understand about us comes through these digital realms. And so it makes sense to me that instead of buying things that you can flex on people with in your meat sack, like a Gucci belt or a you know Lamborghini, you need the digital version of those analog items. And you know, for some people, it's a stupid monkey, but that monkey or ape, says something about the person, which is effectively, I have enough money to buy an image of an ape. But it could also be something way more meaningful or way more expressive. If I bought this NFT that was created by this Ukrainian child who has made the collection to raise money for the efforts there, and now I make that image that's in this collection, my PFP, you understand that I support the effort in Ukraine says something about me in the same way that you might hang a Ukrainian flag outside your house. And that's not only is it something that you can have online, people can see it, obviously images, digital images exist, but it's also verifiable. You can see it, that it's actually in my, my wallet and that it's real. Yeah. And, and, but then the question becomes, right? Like what gives it value beyond that sort of first use case? So like, I mean, obviously humans care about things like this, right? Like we talked about, like once again, in the adjacent room, we talked you don't about- You don't want to know what was going we on we in don't that want, room. Yeah, you don't want to know what's going on in that room. We got really crazy. People are probably like, why didn't you just do the recording in that room? <laughs> <laughs> we we should have. We got into a good dynamic in there. Um, the, like This idea of like authenticity that like we really value as humans, like, you know, original baseball cards, original prints of like magazines, the original like painting, not a reprint. And obviously like this sort of thing is what I think the NFT market like place out there is like trying to like really plug into. But the reality is, is like there's really powerful secondary markets for those things, right? Like people will want like an original Babe Ruth baseball card or you know an original print of some spider-man comic from the 1960s 
And there's something about that, something tangible. Does it think that that's like this thing that was like there in the 1960s and and it's like the original experience. Like, And people's mileage will vary. Some people don't care about that stuff at all. I'm probably more on the side, actually, of people who don't care about that stuff at mm-hmm. all. I'm like kind of like I like to live in the modern world. But <laughs> I recognize that I'm probably a little bit weird like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the point, right? This is all like subjective value. And the question is, is like, what is the subjective value of a transferable token that the Ukrainian government gives you to prove that you donated to Ukraine? Like, does somebody want to buy that from you so they can pretend that they donated to Ukraine? Is that the secondary market? In that instance, I don't know what the value would derive from. But I guess the point is, yeah, probably. Not that they would want to pretend, but they have this piece of history, right? Like, it's the same reason why if I wanted to go into a pawn shop and let's say Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who wrote Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, he was like the Elvis of his day. You know, he would write these letters to fans and have a picture of him and sign it. Let's say he did that in 1889 to some woman in New Hampshire. That thing today is probably worth some weird amount because yeah. of its historical relevance. Maybe it's worth like a thousand bucks. So I think that's where the value might derive just from relevancy. But again, most artifacts are worth nothing. So at the end of the day, those with all due respect to Ukraine, right? Yeah. Most of those will probably not be worth a lot, those tokens at some point in the future. I feel like most of those things trend to zero. But I do want to spend a little bit of time just kind of understanding better like how TB Dex works and like effectively what is it? Is it sidechains like RSKs or stacks? No, like, it's not a sidechain. No. Um I mean it's built on top of the infrastructure that we call Web5. Okay. Um, and it's look, it's it's fundamentally a messaging layer. It's a messaging layer that allows you to establish secure transactions with negotiated social trust, and then ultimately provide a mechanism by which to effectuate settlement. That's what it is. I mean, you could say we think of it as like the SWIFT network for Bitcoin and other tokenized assets like stable coins. But more to the point, I think it's a little bit more powerful than that. Like you could use the TBDEX protocol for fiat to fiat even because it kind of like leaves open the sense that you have to define a settlement protocol. So you could, in theory, define a settlement protocol that actually just operated on purely fiat rails. We're obviously not working on that because we don't think that's a problem that needs to be solved. But the actual protocol itself is generalizable. What's really Is there interoperability with other blockchains? Could I send to a wallet on TBDEX, yeah, yeah the, the settlement, USDC, the, the, Solana? The, the settlement scheme is left very, very open in the protocol on purpose. So in the Bitcoin use case, you could do an on-chain transaction. You could even settle with Lightning if you wanted to, just by like indicating that in the message and then ultimately like actually proceeding through with the actual like settlement of the transaction. And I want to state though, we do not support atomic swaps on the network which is something when we first started talking about it a year ago, I totally anticipated people were gonna attack us. But like the reality is you can't atomic swap with Meatspace, right? You can't Mm -hmm. atomic swap with Fiat. So if what you're gonna do is you're gonna buy $1,000 worth of Bitcoin and settle it in Lightning, well, what's gonna happen? Well, what's gonna happen is you're gonna have to pull that money out of some bank account somewhere, right? Like Mm -hmm. maybe you pull it via a debit card or a credit card or ACH information or Fedwire or any of these other like ways that you can effectuate interbank settlement. And then you're going to like send somebody their, their Bitcoin. There is no way to atomically swap that. 
if we had a whiteboard in here, we could come up with like a mathematical proof to, to prove that. But next time. Yeah. <laughs> and because it's it's true that that means that like we have to find another mechanism for decentralizing the exchange of Bitcoin for dollars. And what we've come up with is like, well, if what you can do is you can decentralize the way in which you negotiate trust, like this idea that like you don't have to have social trust with your bank or with Amazon or with anything is like nonsense. Like we just have this like repeated pattern of like we keep like using our debit card or our credit card and it keeps working. I mean, it could stop working tomorrow. Like someone could like shut their servers down and you could be screwed, right? Like the reality is, is that like it's built upon this idea of social trust that like that that actor is incentivized to actually like do what they promise they said they're gonna do or the people in the future will stop using them or they'll sue them or they'll like protest outside their offices. And we're saying like, you can't really remove that. So you might as well just come up with a way with a protocol like TBDEX to sort of like allow that sort of relationship to be negotiated in a more decentralized way. That's what TBDEX does. So, mm -hmm. so like, you know who the other person that you're dealing with is, you know what their address is, you know if they're regulated, they will tell you they are and they will advertise onto the network like, hey, we're like regulated and you need and to And like, they have that ID, that digital proof. Yeah, digital proof everyone does. Like, yeah, so even a bank the, the operating a on the network would have yeah. a, has a DID with mm -hmm. credentials that even the individual can use to verify that like, hey, you're, you know, your Apple Bank and Apple Bank has a credential that was issued by, could be issued by a government regulator. It could be issued by other banks. It could be issued by us. And the idea is, is that the wallet user, as we talk about it in our white paper, can look at that and they can kind of make a decision of like, okay, well, I, I trust the fact that like the OCC like issued a verifiable credential to this bank. And therefore I'm inclined to believe that they're actually going to make good on their payment. And if you're kind of a crypto native and you're like, oh, like how how is that better than atomic swaps? I will remind you, there is no way of getting around this problem. You cannot atomically swap with the real world. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to way, find a way to build a technology that lets you solve this problem at least in a better way than we do it today. Yeah, so up until now, um, I guess like Alice's acceptance of the bid, right? Yeah. Um, the PFI submits an on-chain transaction that'll hold the Bitcoin that Alice wishes to purchase an escrow. Alice inspects it, makes sure that everything's okay. Once she's satisfied with the smart contract, she can proceed to send fiat money to the chosen PFI. And then that verifies it before releasing the Bitcoin from escrow into Alice's wallet. And what's actually really cool about the, the network is actually has really cool dynamics at play too, because what we're actually forcing liquidity providers on this network to do is not just compete on price, but they also have to compete on speed. They have to compete on like regulatory frictions. Like you can go on to the network as a participating financial institution and say like, look, like we'll sell you Bitcoin, but you have to pay 99 cents for the transaction. But you also have to basically like provide us like proof of residency and all this other stuff, like, like stuff like credentials on the did that, that have been issued. And you could make it like so onerous that no one would ever use you as like a counterparty. It'll mm -hmm. just be like, like there's kind of like an incentive on the network to try and make it as like less onerous as possible mm -hmm. and to really like innovate around compliance and innovate around risk and, and rely on more forward looking methods to like make sure that you know who the other person is. And so there's this like, in, intentional competitive dynamic that the protocol like leads you towards in order to be able to capture more liquidity from the network, which I think is like a good thing. I want to see people like competing for ease of use, ease of price, better speed, 
and more trust. And that's what the network allows you to do. Could you have the trading of traditional real world assets, commodities, bonds on this? You could. You could. I mean, that's why we are leaving an open, like allow you to basically plug in different settlement schemes under the protocol. So we're not limited to Bitcoin. We're not limited to stable coins. Like I said before, like you could use this for like traditional financial use cases. I don't know if people will do that, but you know, like once again, it's an open protocol. We won't be able to stop them. If they want to do it, like they can. I mean, you could go to their house and try to fight them, (laughs) challenge them to a duel. I'll just let the market decide. What about speed? I mean, isn't there sort of de-emphasis on speed here? Not any more than there is today. I would say there's actually more of an emphasis on speeding things up because one, what's like the main thing that like slows the on-ramps and off-ramps down? What slows the on-ramps and off-ramps down is the trust issue, like not knowing if you're like a scammer or you're not gonna complete your payment because like you're bad for your money or there's some compliance issue, maybe you don't really know who you are, so you have to do these things called enhanced due diligence. We believe that decentralized identity and verifiable credential technology actually allows us to significantly reduce the risk and create more high trust relationships that will allow settlement to occur much more quickly than it does through like traditional systems today. Mm. Like even with a like ourselves, like with like Cash App, right? Like we don't have access to this technology today. Although we're, you know, as a company, I think we're very excited to adopt it. But like once we have absolute certainty of who you are, right? Which we don't always have, right? We don't know that you haven't stolen your a driver's license or stolen someone's identity. There's always that that chance there. And so we have to like look for like signals and patterns that could indicate that despite the fact that you've managed to jump through the KYC hoops, that you still could be up to no good. The cool thing about, I think, DID and verifiable credentials is I think we can reduce the surface area where stolen identities and bad actors are less of a problem, which actually allows us to speed up the on-ramps and off-ramps beyond what's available today through like traditional KYC exchanges. That's like a big hope for the technology and why, once again, the emphasis is on identity and trust in such a big way, because the only way that's the only way we can speed it up. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it could help with SIM swapping. Yeah, it could. Look, I, I actually think the DIDs and, and verifiable credentials are literally applicable to everything in our digital life. Yeah. Like everything. I mean, it, and it I replace the authenticator. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my hope is, is that it it's an open standard, by the way. Like we're working through the W3C on the actual DID specification. There's many companies that are working on this. Uh, Microsoft released ION, which is like obviously like, you know. That's um, true. So this is like an open protocol. It's not proprietary. It's like anyone can use it. And by by the way, governments are experimenting with it as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like open source, like people who are just purely about like an open world. It's like Bitcoin anarchists are like working on it. Companies are working on it and even government. It's it's like one of these things where there's like something in it for like all of you, like whether or not you think that the government should go away or whether or not you are the government and you just like really care about having secure digital identity. There's actually something in this like for everybody. It's like very kind of like a neutral protocol. It it improves privacy because there's no centralized database. There's no centralized database to hack, right? Like there's no SQL database to like query, like let's, you know, select star, like the, you know, the whole list of all the people with their DIDs. It's like, it works way more like a, 
a crypto wallet in the sense that you have like public private identifiers and then you have credentials within that that you can present, which can be verified. There's instructions within the credentials of like how to verify them. But like people can't see that unless it's presented. So it's it's more privacy preserving and it gives you like fundamentally more control. So, and this is why like I think I'm so excited about it because it's like there's something in there for everyone, no matter where you come down and the sort of the political debates around all this stuff. Yeah, everything is getting so political. Yeah. No aspect, which, you know, it makes sense that that's the case is it's really just it's making decisions about how one allocates resources. And since there's a finite amount of resources, then you're going to have tension. And that's all that it is. It's just people getting angry with each other because there are only finite amount of things that we can enjoy and have and use. I think about that one. Um I don't think politics is just about resources, but I think that's a big part of it. Like, obviously I think, you know, there's clearly a lot of stuff we fight over, which is just like absolute nonsense and has nothing to do with resources actually. So. Yeah. Well, that's identity politics, isn't it? <laughs> um, well, we'll have to do this again. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate you stopping by the show. I really Any enjoyed it. Lingering thoughts, anything you think people aren't talking about enough. In look, crypto outside of maybe what you're working on. Well, look, here's actually what I want to say, right? I haven't said this yet, but I do want to say it. Like, look, we're going through a hard time right now in the world. And I realize there's a lot of people going through a hard time in this space. The market is ruthless. And as I said at the beginning, I think almost everyone in this space, with some rare exceptions, is in it to make the world a better place. There's tough times right now and there's tough times ahead. But these technologies that we're working on with this belief in, in driving more decentralization and more inclusion, it's a hopeful thing. And I have a lot of hope for the future. And I want to just tell people out there, you know, to keep your head down. There's tough lessons that need to be learned. But like, if you were able to pull it together and raise some money and build a startup and build something, even if it didn't work out, like pick yourself back up, take your lessons and use that information to get it right the second time or the third time. And just never give money to Kyle. And just and never give, yes, never. Take note. <laughs> Where can our listeners learn more about what you guys are working on? Are there any like, you know, career openings or? Yeah, we're hiring engineers and for other roles, tbd.website. Hmm. We thought that was a <laughs> fun URL. So check that out. We do have a link to our careers page there for openings we have at the company and i'd love to meet you if you think you can help us in our mission yeah people who want to uh follow you on twitter where can they do that i am brock m on twitter <laughs> great thank you so much for joining thank you for having me the scoop will be back for you again with another great guest have an awesome day all opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service.